Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Yes, we're back. Series three of Bat Chat is here and we have a great series lined up for you. If you're a returning listener, it's great to have you back. If this is your first time, welcome along. I'm Steve Rowe, a BCT trustee. Now, unlike the last series, we've been able to record all of the guests in this series out in the field rather than online. And boy, do we have some great guests coming up. Episodes, as always, will be released every second Wednesday from now until the spring. You can join the conversation online. Use the hashtag BatChat. That's all one word. As we meet each of the guests in this series, you'll hear stories from people working to make a difference in the world of bat conservation. We'll be hearing from people who care about individual species, people who concentrate on one particular part of bat ecology and people who are working with bats at a landscape scale as well as keeping up with the latest news and hearing from people in the world of chiroptera conservation we hope that you'll be inspired to get involved because bats need our help on today's episode we join professor gareth jones on the roof of his office in the city of bristol in the southwest of england now if you've wondered what sort of things an academic who works with bats gets up to gareth revealed some of the studies he's worked on in his lengthy career to me back in july so gareth we're on what's known as the sky lounge on the top of the life sciences building in bristol and you joined this university 36 years ago back in 1985 what was it that made you pursue research, and in particular bat research? Yes, you've done res- your research very, very well. Um, I think it is 36 years now that I've been in Bristol. So um, why did I come to Bristol? Well, I actually did my PhD on birds. Um, I worked on reproductive investment in swallows and sand martins um, in Stirling in Scotland. And then I got interviewed for um, a postdoc position in Bristol. And um, the work there was to work on aerodynamics of bat flight. And I didn't know that much about aerodynamics. Um, and um, I was offered the position in, in Bristol. And in those days, we used to do experiments in corridors. So we used to come in um, in the evenings take over the uh, top um, corridor in the department, the old building that we were in in those days, and we would fill the corridor with helium-filled soap bubbles. And I had three noctils at the time that uh, I inherited from my predecessor. 
And these noxious, I could fly them around the lecture theatre and they'd come back and land on me. They were really uh, tame animals. And we did experiments flying these noxials through these bubbles and we would photograph them with um, multiple flash photography methods, stroboscopic imaging. So we could visualise the movements of the air as the bat flew through the bubbles. And we discovered different gates, if you like, associated with fast flight and sl slow flight. And um, that gave us a paper in Nature back in 1985. And uh, that's how things kicked off in Bristol, really. I mean, what was it, going back to Sterling, what was it about Sterling that made you want to do research, I guess? You know, what, why, why the academic side? Um, well... I guess I've been pretty, I've, I've, I've always been interested in the natural world. And I still find it, you know, the biggest source of um, wonder and inspiration out there. And ever since I was a kid, I was really into, into nature. I wanted to understand more about it. Um, I did a degree at uh, Royal Holloway College in London. And I knew from the age of 14 that I wanted to be a biologist. And... There was someone at Stirling University, my, my PhD supervisor there, whose work I really thought very highly of. Um, and I applied to do a PhD with him, and um, I was offered the position. Nice. So, I mean, what was it about, you know, being a teenager at the age of 14 that made you know that you wanted to go into this? You know, have you, if, were, were your parents interested in wildlife, or was it stuff at school that influenced you? No, I guess I was an only child, um, and I just got great pleasure from wandering around. In those days, my father would drop me off in the middle of nowhere. Um, I could wander around, um, do some bird watching, look at butterflies, um, etc. And um, I, I just found nature fascinating. And, um, you know, you reach a point, I suppose, where... You, you know, you start watching things, seeing different things, and I still enjoy doing that, but you reach a point where you want to find out how things work. And I've always been fascinated by evolution and trying to understand um, why things are coloured the way they are, why things make the sounds in the way they do, um, why wings are shaped they are, the way they are, etc. And from those that early study with Notchels, since then you've in the past you've been very much focused on the echolocation side of things. What about echolocation that made you go down that route of, of bat research? Yes, um, so initially I got really interested in, um, you know, I'm always a great believer in making predictions in biology and having a solid framework for making those predictions. And working on flight, you can use aerodynamics theory to predict how wing shape will affect how bats fly, how fast they fly, how good they are at turning, and how that relates to the ecology of the animal. And you can do the same thing with acoustics. So um, there's a huge amount of theory developed largely by sonar and radar engineers um, about how certain signals work in particular ways. And um, although, you know, humans have only been using these signals relatively recently. The bats have been using them for 50 million years or so. And there's been a remarkable convergence in the types of signals used in sonar and radar and some of the signals that uh, bats use as well. So it's having that prediction. Why is a bat using this type of signal? Why is a, bat's, um, f why is a bat flying in this particular way, given the shape of its wings? 
that I found fascinating um, at the start of my research career on bats. You've published, I mean, from what I could find online, it's well over 300 papers. I dare say it's close to 400 now, if not more. There's been an awful lot of research done, and yet we still know so little about echolocation. What what areas do you think we've still got to learn, and what, what areas of echolocation left to study? Um, just the last few days I've been writing um, a little, something called a dispatch article for um, one of the top biology journals about a paper that came out in Science um, a couple of weeks ago, where um, it was shown quite convincingly that these tree mice... Um, echolocate and people had a hunch that this was happening for some time they knew that these mice were emitting signals um, that were very similar to the echolocation signals of bats but this study was so good in that um, not only did it describe the signals of all the known living species of tree mice it also did the behavioral experiments with the ear plugging etc to show that they used these signals for orientation in the dark um, it did um, showed molecular genetics work where um, you can see convergence in some of the hearing genes. Um, and this convergence has been noticed before in uh, bats and dolphins. But now these same hearing genes follow similar patterns of molecular evolution in tree mice. And also um, this convergent morphological uh, evolution. So some of the bones... Um, in, in the ear and uh, in something called the stylohyal um, apparatus show a fusion pattern and that fusion pattern was only previously noticed in bats it was thought to be important for echolocation we don't know exactly why and sure enough the same pattern occurs in these tree mice um, so discovering echolocation in new taxa is always going to be really really interesting and you know in recent years I've got more and more fascinated by genes and uh, molecular approaches. Now we have these really high quality genomes of bats, we can start um, understanding some of the uh, genetic basis for echolocation uh, calls, etc. And that's, that's an area that sort of excites me quite a lot at the moment. And do you think that will answer that chicken and egg question of which came first, flight or echolocation? <laughs> or, do yeah, think, or do you think okay, we'll never know? Okay, okay. so... Um, Yes, it's, it's a very good uh, chicken and egg question. Um, I tend to come down in favour more of the um, echolocation first hypothesis. And this mice, mouse study was really interesting in that, um, you know, mice aren't related to bats. They're in a very different super order of mammals. But uh, this study showed that terrestrial mammals can use quite sophisticated forms of echolocation. So it is um, extremely plausible, I think, that the ancestor of bats may have used something similar um, in the past. Um, and yes, we're starting, starting to use sort of developmental biology to understand um, some of these features to do with, uh, that might help us understand whether um, echolocation evolved before flight or indeed if the two evolved together, the so-called tandem hypothesis, because we know that echolocation calls are extremally costly to produce when an animal is at rest. And by coupling the uh, sound production with, uh, by, by, by using the same muscles that are used to power the wings in flight, it's been hypothesized that bats can produce um, echolocation calls at no extra cost to the cost of flight. And what, what do you think has been your 
Or what's been your most favourite piece of research that you've done? What, what, which, one, which experiment did you enjoy doing most? So some of the work that's really excited me recently has involved a phenomenon called uh, DNA methyl- methylation and epigenetics. And, uh, you know, we've known about DNA and genes and genomes for some time now. But epigenetics is where um, portions of DNA undergo this process called methylation, and that can affect how genes are expressed, so, so the quantities of proteins that are produced. And uh, these genes become methylated in a very specific way in relation to age. So um, we published a paper, I mean, this is work led by Jerry Wilkinson uh, and Steve Horvath in the U.S., but we contributed data from uh, the long-term study on greater horseshoe bats that I've been doing with Roger Ransom. Yes. And we found that we can you know, predict the age of these greater horseshoe bats within months from these, these patterns of DNA methylation. And what's really... Uh, uh, we've started to understand some of the ways in which um, you know, certain genes become hyper or hypo, more or less methylated in bats and how this might confer um, exceptional, exceptional longevity, how it might confer um, protection against cancers, etc. as well. But what interests me at the moment, I guess, is um, why some animals age faster than others. So um, something I'm hoping to do in the near future is look at these changes in DNA methylation and trying to understand how things like poor weather how um, excessive, large-scale investment in reproduction might force um, changes in DNA methylation that might bring about um, accelerated aging or decelerated aging in uh, in bats. And do, I mean, do you think it's realistic that that will help us understand how we can prevent cancers going going forward? Yeah, I mean that, that that's an interesting question. It's always something that people write into papers, or as they write they write into grant proposals, etc. But um, there there the, the, the are there is potential um, in. There's no doubt that understanding epigenetics is perhaps one of the ways we can better understand aging. And there's some amazing work in in the U.S. at the moment showing that uh, these patterns of this, this ticking of the epigenetic clock can indeed be reversed by um, certain drugs, etc. So it is possible that this, you know, I think this is just one cog in the wheel of um, understanding aging. And uh, I think by understanding the epigenetic clock um, and perhaps reversing it, we might be able to um, uh, get some way of slowing down aging um, in in humans, indeed. Whether There's no doubt that bats possess very specialized ways of dealing with aging. So in some species, they're telomeres, these little caps on the end of chromosomes that get shorter and shorter, typically, as animals age. Some bat species don't show um, erosion of these, these, these telomeres with age. And uh, Emma Teeling, especially in, in um, University College Dublin, um, has begun to understand that there are certain perhaps genetic mechanisms that might be specific to bats that prevent the telomeres from getting shorter. Whether that would open the way for novel treatments in humans, I, I don't really know, but you know, possibly it might. Um, and we're, we're working closely with Emma on the telomere studies as well, looking at uh, 
you know we've we've got greater horseshoe bats now in roger's study population that are um well over 24 years of age mm. and we can uh, look at patterns in their telomeres we, roger has got amazing information on their reproductive output um etc over the years so relating all this life history data to um uh, patterns of aging I, th- I think really excites me actually at the moment we uh, had roger on the first series of the podcast i'd never been to woodchester before right and we did uh did the count and we did a interview in one of the rooms and then he was like do you want to come upstairs into the attic and have a look i was like yeah and like squeeze roger at the age of whatever he is still squeezing through that tiny little gap and you think oh my goodness yeah. every week he's doing that yeah it's yeah. just amazing yeah there's no doubt that roger's epigenetic clock is ticking <laughs> at a very healthy rate <laughs> And how many continents or countries have you have you done research on, and which of which of those have been your favourite areas, and why? Yeah, um, you know, I've sort of lost count. I've, I've done research in um, trying to think of a few examples: Australia, um, New Zealand, um, Italy, Belize, North America, Malaysia, Thailand, um, several countries in Europe, and I've had students working in. Um, Mexico, Colombia, um, the African continents. I've worked in, in the Gambia, etc. myself. Um, in terms of favorite places to, to work, um, I had a great time in New Zealand studying the, um, the, um, short-tailed bats there that spend a lot of time, uh, foraging on the ground. Um, I've always loved going to desert habitats, so some of the uh, echolocation work we did in places like Arizona, um, I mean, it's just such a stunning place to work at. And places like Texas as well, with these huge colonies of um, uh, the Mexican free-tailed bats. uh, Those are some of my favorite spots. I must admit, I'm more of a... I, I like a bit of space in the environment, and things like desert habitats appeal to me a lot more than... Um, tropical rainforests that I find a little bit um, closed in and um, uh, very, very hot places to work. But having said that, you know, uh, I've had some great time catching bats like these Chiromeles bats, these huge aerial insectivorous bats in Malaysia. And um, it's not just bats. I mean, I've got students who've worked on um, monkeys, crocodiles, and now on crayfish um, insects etc as well and uh, some great experiences going around in little dugout canoes um, in the Igapo forest um, in the Amazon as well. For when I was um, getting into bats when I was a teenager one of the most recent bits of research that was around was the research that you led with Kate Barlow and with Elizabeth Barrett spitting the pipistrels. Can you just tell us a bit more about that story and how, how you ended up are you suspecting that they were two different species and the two bits of work that those two women did? Yeah, this is taking, taking me back quite a long time now. I think the initial paper we published was 1993. And so just in the years coming up to 1993, um, I was just recording the echolocation calls of pipistrels and noticed that there were two echolocating types there was this sort of bimodal distribution in the frequencies of the echolocation calls i wasn't the first to notice this people had noticed it in 
continental Europe before, but they thought that the pipistrels were changing their echolocation calls in relation to habitat. And they didn't notice how, you know, very bimodal the distribution of call frequencies actually was. So um, I teamed up with someone who was an intern in the lab at the time. Her name was Sophie Van Paris. She's now um, an academic in, well, until recently she was in Norway. I think she's moved on again, um, maybe to Canada since, since, since then. Um, and she came to the lab from Cambridge and um, we spent a summer going around roosts and recording these echolocation calls. And we found that any one maternity roost contained only one echolocation type of pipistrelle bat. We also caught bats from the roost and we let them go in the same standardized habitat type. And they still kept this different in difference in call frequencies. So we could reject the hypothesis that it was the habitat that was changing the echolocation calls of the pipistrelles. Then um, Kate came um, into my lab and, uh, you know, Kate, Kate was um, an amazing woman. She, um, she had a great way of um, making quite complicated um, arguments simple. She could write very, very clearly. And she was just so um, efficient, I guess, as, as well. And Kate sort of started bringing things together. She worked on the social call differences of these two echolocating types of pipistrelles. She did playback experiments where we played back the calls of one type in the field and found that only the same type responded to those calls. So these are the, the little squeaks you sometimes hear pipistrelles making. And they make other bats go away. They're probably better called antisocial calls. And... Um, but only the call, the social calls of 55 kilohertz bats, as we called them then, make 55 kilohertz bats go away. The 45 kilohertz bats ignored them and vice versa. Uh, Kate also looked at um, skull morphology, roost sizes, etc. And um, we started looking at habitat use differences as well. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other studies going on at the time. Ian Davidson-Watts did some work radio tracking bats and found very different patterns of habitat use. Similar studies at Aberdeen confirmed that, um, that were going on at the same time. Uh, Kirsty Park, who was um, in my lab too at around about the same time, she showed that uh, the mating groups of these bats only contained one of these what we called phonic types at the time, suggesting that they were um, reproductively isolated. And then we teamed up with um, Elizabeth Barrett um, um, at the Zoological Society of London. And initially we did what, what nowadays would be considered very, very basic genetics. Um, we looked at uh, short fragments of mitochondrial genes and we found big differences between these two um, echolocating types of uh, bats. And uh, these differences were so big that if you use something like called a molecular clock, it predicts that perhaps these species diverged five or six million years ago. So that was fairly exciting. We've uh, carried on doing work with nuclear uh, fragments of nuclear um, genes and confirmed this, uh, these differences as well. And I suppose what excites me most about this study is the fact that it's, brings together um, studies on acoustics, 
genetics, behavior, habitat use, and integrate them all together in showing convincingly that there are two species um, present. And we've, we've carried on using these approaches, and I think I've been involved in studies that have identified another four or so new species of bats around the world building on these studies. And it's remarkable now. You know, when I, when I first came into the field, there were what? Probably somewhere around about 800 species of bats described in the world. Now we've got over 1,400. And this is in part, I would say, largely due to these advances in molecular techniques and uh, molecular characterization of different species of bats. And also different types of um, echolocation calls in bats as well. That's uh, helped identify some of these new species as well. How many more species do you reckon we'll find in the coming years? Um, yeah, good question. I, I, I don't know. I suspect the rate of increase will slow down slightly. Um, but um, I'm fairly confident we'll get past 1,500 relatively easily yeah. and as uh, especially as these molecular methods are applied more and more in as yet understudied bat faunas i think we'll we'll hopefully find a fair number of of new species so fallacia and fruit bats won you the ig nobel prize where does a piece of research like that come from did you go specifically looking for that or did it come out of a byproduct of something else you were doing oh this was just one of these um pieces of serendipity so um i was i i guess i've been involved in two quite big research programs overseas one in china and more recently in india and um when i worked in china my colleagues there noticed this behavior um and described it and um it uh attracted a lot of uh, attention so i think when i last looked at the PLOS statistics. We published a paper in the journal called PLOS One. Of all the PLOS papers, this was the second most highly viewed of any of the papers, and it, it caused a lot of um, concern. There was even a, a sexual harassment case um, in Ireland associated with this paper, where a scientist left the paper on a colleague's um, desk. Uh, there, were, there were other things going on in that case that uh, muddied the water, but I remember this scientist being um, reprieved um, initially in the Irish courts and holding up a copy um, of this paper on the front page of the Irish Times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was, well, it was interesting. I got a lot of feedback from some quite famous evolutionary biologists, actually, saying that, you know, can this tell us anything about, for instance, about pleasure sensations in other animals, for instance? And... Um, only last week or the week before, I got um, a video sent to me from the US of a Rodriguez fruit bat perfor performing self-fellatia. <laughs> wow, gosh. Um, I must admit, I never knew that um, some of these fruit bats had such enormous tackle. <laughs> <laughs> and going back to the bat detectors I mean you've said echolocation has still got an important role to play in splitting the species what do you think the future of bat detectors are? Do you, see, do you think we've reached a peak of our technological abilities or do you reckon it'll continue to get better? Yeah I mean I'm amazed at 
the advances actually in bat detector technology. So um, when I first started working on bat echolocation, I used to use this thing called a, a RACAL instrumentation recorder, which was probably about a meter long. It weighed an awful lot, and I had to power it with yachting batteries. <laughs> and uh, this sent me to um, a chiropractor, actually, in Bristol from carrying it around. And then the technology improved bit by bit, steadily um, over time. And, uh, you know, the advances in some of the Peterson detectors um, allowed us to time-expand calls and even record the calls um, in the ultrasonic calls in real time. And uh, these fast sampling analog to digital cards um, were developed. Um, the detectors got smaller and smaller, much more portable, allowed us to record echolocation calls in more and more remote places. And, um, you know, the ability to leave these detectors in the field for long periods of time and even to transmit data remotely has been fantastic as well. And now, with the development of these very, very uh, small audio moth detectors and the like, this is opening up the field of um, bat, bat acoustics to, you know, a whole range of countries where um, expense prohibited the use of um, echolocation call recording equipment previously. So th 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 this is fantastic, actually, and I think um, this is really going to open a lot of avenues to advance re um, research on things like habitat used by bats right throughout the world. Um, so, you know, it's, it's always difficult to predict what's around the corner, um, but I think these miniature detectors, and also the fact that you can now fit tiny microphones to flying bats, record the calls of these bats as they're flying around in the wild. I mean, that's fantastic. And what are your views on autoanalysis? Yeah, um, so um, automated analysis. So, you know, back 20 or more years ago, we did quite a lot of work on trying to identify different bat species by extracting a number of features from echolocation calls and using these what we call multivariate statistical methods that uh, separate the calls, in many cases, quite reliably to species, but not always reliably. And the challenges arise partly because some species use very, very similar um, echolocation calls. But I think one of the main problems is to do the quality of the sounds recorded. So if you're off axis from a bat or if you're a long way, if the bat is very distant, you're only catching um, a portion of the echolocation call. Um, a while ago, a famous uh, bat echolocation scientist, David Pye, always said that the true signal is illusory. And I know exactly what he means. You only capturing the true signal emitted by a bat is, is, is probably an impossible um, task. You're only just getting a, a representation of it. And if these signals are of low quality, it's going to create problems with um, identification. So I think automatic identification can be used very, very effectively up to a point. But you have to be very, very cautious. And um, I wrote a paper, or I was involved in a paper a few years ago with um, a few colleagues, uh, Danilo Russo, one of my former students, who's now a professor in um, Naples, and a colleague who's just left us, who, um, you know, was one of my favorite uh, colleagues and a great friend, Jens Riddell from Sweden. And we 
published a paper where we showed we knew what the species were that were emitted the calls, and we identified a number of misclassifications from automated um, analysis. And uh, the message was, you know, be prudent, be careful, um, exercise caution when you're using these automated identification methods. I found them extremely useful for, in Britain at least, most of the bats you record are pipistrels. And these automatic identification programs are very, very good at identifying pipistrels. So you can actually take out the pipistrels from these huge data sets with great confidence and then sort of manually go through some of the other files to verify identification. So, you know, I think use them prudently. um, And if you do so, you you can reduce your workload by a huge amount. Hmm. And you mentioned students there. I mean, you've mentored something like 40, 50 PhD students. Where do all the ideas for these different studies come from? Yeah, I think it's just gone, uh, just over 50 students now have completed uh, PhDs um, in my lab. And um, where do the ideas come from? It's a mixture. So sometimes I have ideas and I will write a research proposal that then gets some funding and we interview students and um, take on the best ones. Sometimes the students find the funding themselves and often develop most of the ideas themselves. So um, just a few examples off the top of my head, especially overseas students. I've had some great overseas students who've raised their own funding and brought it to uh, Bristol with their own ideas. And I've tweaked those ideas a little bit, but uh, you know, most of the intellectual ideas have come from the students themselves. Several students have raised funding to do their own PhDs. So some examples, um, John Flanders, who's now head of um, research science at uh, Bat Conservation International in Austin, Texas. He raised, I think, over £60,000 towards funding his PhD on horseshoe bats. Emma Stone, who's now a senior lecturer at, um, not far from here actually, the University of West of England, um, she raised lots and lots of money to fund her work on street lighting and bats so it's a two-way process and sometimes I have a fair amount of input into coming up with the ideas and shaping them sometimes most of the impetus um, comes from students but you know if you were to ask me what my most favorite achievement has been over my career it's actually mentoring some of these PhD students and now seeing them um, as professors all over the world in Italy, um, Taiwan, uh, Malaysia, Brazil, um, for just a few examples, as well as several now in the UK, um, and seeing them develop their own research groups, seeing them have PhD students. Some of those PhD students have even had PhD students themselves, so I think I'm an academic great grandfather to some of these now um that gives me a huge sense of satisfaction actually and you know probably more than any discovery i've made it's this this mentoring this nurturing of um ideas among younger scientists that uh, has been great i was gonna say the list is pretty impressive when you've got names like orly rascor and you know emma stone and people like that on it it's like ooh, some some big names out there now that have come through your lab it's it's pretty impressive what do you think the greatest threat to our bats is? Do you think there's a singular threat? Ah, the, uh, the threats to bats. I mean, 
I think habitat loss, habitat change has got to be number one up there. Um, there's always this huge challenge about how people perceive bats, and this hasn't been helped by the recent uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, pandemic. Um, but habitat loss, habitat degradation, loss of food supplies, I think these are the things um, that uh, are probably having greatest impact on bats. Climate change is no doubt having an impact as well. That's not necessarily always negative, though sometimes, in most cases it probably is. Um, and, uh, you know, understanding, we've just got a PhD student starting this September, trying to relate changes in insect abundance over the years. So using the long-term data that have been collected at Rothamsted and trying to relate that to population changes in both insectivorous birds and bats and trying to get a better understanding of how some of these probably fairly catastrophic declines in insect populations have had knock-on effects for bats. When I was doing some research of, of yourself and trying to work out what sort of questions to come up with I came across your personal web page of where you're doing your photography stuff and you know we're sat on this skyland we've got amazing views over the city you do a lot of photography is that a way to is that what you enjoy doing in your personal time do you you very much step away from the bat side of things uh yes so um you know 90 percent of my time nowadays is sat in front of a computer screen um writing manuscripts revising manuscripts signing forms uh, attending online committee meetings, etc. And, and that reaches a point where you just need to get outside. It's not good for anyone, I think, to spend all day sat down in front of computers. So getting out into the natural world and seeing it, and in my case, photographing it, gives me a huge... It reinforces my sense of wonder, I guess, about nature. And okay, it does result in me spending more time at the computer, fiddling around with the photographs afterwards. But actually being out there um, and seeing wildlife gives me huge pleasure. So, you know, in the last few weeks, one of the things that amazed me about lockdown actually was just rather than uh, going out and seeing wildlife in other places, just seeing what we have around Bristol, seeing the peregrine falcons in the gorge and a couple of nights ago, watching some kestrel chicks flying around in the gorge, the rare flowers up there, it's fantastic. And if people are visiting Bristol, where would you recommend they go visit to look at wildlife? What, which are your favourite spots? Um, the Avon Gorge is, is, it just never ceases to surprise me. I mean, you, you can get within a few metres of these peregrine falcons. They're so used to people. You have to spend a lot of time there get a lot of luck in seeing them but when you see them and they're flying past it's fantastic three chicks fledged um, a few weeks ago and uh, you know seeing the parents bringing in prey for these birds is amazing Um, the flowers of the Avon Gorge are phenomenal as well we're also very very lucky in Bristol in having a huge diversity of bats close by as well there are places on the edge of town um, Eastville Lake, actually, which you might even be able to see from the Sky Lounge here, um, and Abbot's Pool on the other side of Bristol. These um, riparian habitats are also extremely good for bats, even even in quite an urban setting. 
And that, that was going to be my final question, actually. You know, do you know of any roosts in the city or, you know, have you got any favourite bat sightings you've seen in the city whilst you've been here for the last few decades? Yeah, I guess I guess the most famous bats in Bristol are the Lysler's bats. So um, there's a famous mammalogist called um, Harrison Matthews who wrote some of the new naturalist books on British mammals mm. uh, some time ago. And he was based, um, I believe, in Bristol. And he discovered colonies of these Lysler's bats in the city. And uh, they're still there. Um, and it's one of the best places around, actually, to see Lysler's bats. I've seen them over my back garden, flying around. And um, there's a roost, you know, probably half a mile from here that often has a hundred Lysler's bats in it, again, in a very, very urban setting. So um, those are no doubt, I think, the star bats of the city of Bristol. That's been fascinating. Gareth Jones, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks to Gareth for taking the time out of his day to come on the show. And thank you to you for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you take a look at the show notes, you'll find links to follow Gareth and his Bat Lab on Twitter, his personal webpage and that fellatio paper he was talking about. Now, a few weeks ago, a fellow podcaster posted a tweet which said the following... Podcasters work hard to produce shows on a regular basis in the hope that strangers will enjoy them enough to leave a review so that other strangers will trust that the show is worth the listen. This podcaster then posted in the same tweet a link to a plastic gherkin, or pickle if you're in the US, which is for sale on Amazon, and the said plastic gherkin yodels when you press a button. It has over 6,000 reviews. So, dear listener, if you've enjoyed this show enough to reach this point, we really would dearly love it if you could please write us a review on the Apple Podcasts app. It helps us reach more people to show them just how great bats are, and we're pretty sure that bats are better than a plastic yodeling gherkin. We'll be back in two weeks with Jane Harris from the Norfolk Barberstale Study Group, and I'll leave you with a taste of what's to come in that next episode. I'll see you then. Well, we're in a medieval thatched barn, which is, I think, one of the biggest in the country. It was used by the the famous Paston family in the past, and it's a huge barn with adjoining cart sheds, brick and flint and thatch, with uh, something like 20 trusses that go up different levels to the roof. So it's, it's full of timbers, which have mortise joints and gaps in them right up to the roof. So it's, it's in many ways a bat heaven because for crevice living bats, there are lots of opportunities here. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.